Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. In this episode, I talk with Tracy DeLuca, a design innovator who works with clients to help them apply design thinking to their lives. And I ask her some questions about what processes she uses to manage her life. I was hoping that you could tell me a little bit about your background and what you've been doing lately. Sure. So my background is in design and innovation. I worked at a company called IDEO, which is one of the world's top design firms. And I did that for about seven years. My background before that is as a writer. And so I worked in advertising. And after I went to IDEO, I learned this entirely new skill set of creative problem solving that has a much broader use case. And I did that, created products and services. I designed experiences for companies, large and small. And then um, towards the end of my career there, I focused in health and wellness and education because I felt like the skills that I had were incredibly useful and had a high degree of impact. And I wanted to make sure that I was applying them in spaces where I really felt good about the work we were doing. Can you tell me a little bit about IDEO's uh, unique approach? Because I've, I've heard a little bit about them and they've got some interesting ideas around how design, engineering, idea thinking, uh, what, what is their term for that? They call it design thinking. And so that is just a I liken it to the scientific method, which is it's a process for which to consistently come up with results that you want. In this case, they're creative results. Um, you're trying to get to solutions that are either new to a space or new to the world. And I say, if science is the way that we understand the world around us, design is how we impact the world around us. That's beautiful. I like the way that that works out. And you were applying that at, at IDEO to work with clients, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, a lot of different, I mean, some packaged goods, you know, like Anheuser-Busch or um, I worked with the Girl Scouts. I worked with uh, Los Angeles County when they were looking to redesign the voting system for their county. And so it just has such broad applicability that it's, it's amazing to have something that you can rely on so so heartily when the things you're being asked to do are seemingly impossible tasks. <laughs> I can imagine. Now, so <laughs> the, the focus of, of this podcast is actually on how processes work. So I'm wondering if you can take us a little bit through how that process would work with a typical client. Sure. Yeah, there's actually, um, I would break it down into about four stages. And the first is really getting focused. One of the hardest things for people to do is to define the challenge that they're going after. And oftentimes, you kind of default to challenges that you're familiar with. Um, you know, if you're, if you're talking about in your life, it's like, oh, I want to lose weight. Okay, that's your challenge. But there's ways to design those challenges to be more specific. Um, it's actually a balance between specificity and broadness. You, it's kind of Goldilocks. 
So you want to find a challenge that isn't so narrow that you've defined the answer in the challenge itself. It's like, how do we get kids to eat more vegetables at dinner time? If you think about that as a challenge, you're pretty constrained and maybe you can come up with one to two ideas, but you're not going to come up with a hundred. And likewise, you don't want to come up with something so broad that you're solving, you know, world peace. And so it wouldn't be how might we uh, get all kids to eat healthier so that they grow to be uh, healthy adults. It's like, where do you even begin with that? <laughs> so part of, part of the, the, the very first step in this challenge really is defining the problem in a way that it can be addressed using this technique. Yeah. So get focused is step one. Uh, get inspired is step two. And what I love about that is, you know, we have our own life experiences and our own cognitive biases and things that we carry around with us. And when you're looking to solve a problem in a new way, you want to expand your purview of the world to see what else is out there. And so there's three, I would call them like superpowers of, you know, they're not superpowers, but like power moves of getting inspired. And one is uh, that you want to talk to people who are experts in the field that you're looking at. So I'm not an expert in the democratic process. So how do I help LA County redesign their voting system? Well, I need to go out and connect with the people who do have the expertise in that I am an expert of the design thinking process, but I, I love partnering with experts in the various industries. The other, um, the second one would be to look at analogous industries. And so a lot of times in the corporate world, uh, competitors look to one another to see what they should be doing. Instead of looking at different industries that might have a similar challenge. And so they end up chasing each other, but it doesn't necessarily relate to what the consumer wants. So a good example, and this we often use this, is at IDEO there was a project that was looking at emergency rooms and how to make them more efficient and effective. And you know, it's high paced, high stress trauma cases. You never know what's going to come in the door, but you need to be able to act quickly. And so instead of, you know, just going to another hospital's emergency room to take a look, they thought, well, what's another industry that has the same high pressure, quick turnaround situations? And they ended up going to see a NASCAR pit crew. <laughs> and, and it was really inspiring to them. One of the things that they found was that each member of the team had their own identical toolkit. So everybody had the same tools at their disposal. There was a redundancy there. And so in case, you know, I need a screwdriver and it just for whatever reason happens not to be there, I can turn to the person next to me and know that chances are good that they're going to have it. Uh, and so then they brought that learning back into the designs that they had for the emergency room. Oh, that's fascinating. So they're, uh, they're not just relying on people in the same industry to try to imitate the, the patterns that they've created. They're going outside of their own industry and looking at where people have been successful with things that are similar. Yeah. And so an example, I was working, um, you know, I was working in the beer industry and they were kind of looking to each other. Miller Lite, I think, had come out with a, a wide mouth can and it's like, OK, well, what's our version of that? And it's like, well, but do people really need that or is that just kind of a cool little thing to talk about? It's not really an innovation. Um, and it doesn't get you as far. And then the third power move within the Get Inspired camp is um, talk to extremes. 
And a lot of times when you're doing traditional say market research, you know, obviously you want to know what your consumer wants and design thinking is all about leading with users first, people first, what are their wants and needs? It's, you know, you want to have a technology that's viable and a business case that is feasible, but most companies start with one of those two. Uh, in design thinking, you start with the user desirability. And so you want to talk to the people you're designing for, for sure, but you also want to talk to the extremes. And why that's important is because those are the people who can articulate things that the people who are in the middle, who are kind of happy with the status quo, they can't see or articulate. So in the LA County project, we went out and talked to you know, people who used to vote but don't anymore. Or we talked to people who had uh, visual impairments or hearing impairments. We spent a day with a group of folks who had cerebral palsy and we looked at how they engaged with their technology. And by seeing those extreme cases, we can pick up on the, the details that just a regular Joe voter is not gonna be able to, to tell you about. Interesting, interesting. I, I think it's probably atypical. Most uh, most people think of the type of market research that companies would do as going out and trying to find the most average consumer possible and yet going to the extremes. I guess you get the people who have the most frustrations and can articulate their uh, their issues the most clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also say that uh, in my mind, market research is a valid validating tool. Uh, design research is an inspiration tool. So you're going out to inspire the designers to look at the world differently versus I'm looking at a market segment to try and understand who my consumer is. I really appreciate the distinction that you made there between market research and design research. It, it wouldn't have occurred to me. Yeah, it, it, it's whenever we have conversations with clients about it, I think it's one of the sticking points because it is so unfamiliar and kind of unintuitive. That's interesting. Okay, so... You've done this uh, this design research and you've put together these things around the, the problem space that you've created. What's the next step? Okay, so the next step is getting scrappy. <laughs> and <laughs> I like that's, that. <laughs> that's the most fun because that is when, you know, you, you've gone out, you framed your challenge, you've gone out, you've gotten your inspiration, and now you, you sit in a room with all the other folks that are on your team, which hopefully is a multidisciplinary team if you're doing a corporate project. Or if you're, a, you know, just an individual looking at designing your life, maybe it's just some friends of yours who know you really well. And you look at what you've got and you start moving them around and trying to find patterns. And so the brain is really wired to see patterns. And that makes us, we call it the synthesis process that makes you um, capable of just seeing like, what are some things we heard across the board, you know, from the experts, from the extremes? What did we see that was analogous? taking it up a level and getting into this theoretical space. Now this is the, the confusing, like hard to explain and hard to do, but I feel like it's where the money, like really. <laughs> it sounds like it, but it, I, I agree. It, it, it's also very confusing. I'm trying to visualize this. And in my mind, I'm picturing, um, like boards full of index cards, and I'm picturing those electronic tools where you can draw little circles and lines between ideas and connect them. I'm wondering how you how you'd approach something like that. Yeah, um, that's a pretty good assessment. So it is. It's foam core boards. It's post-it notes, and the reason why post-it notes is because you can move them around, you know, ad nauseum, 
And a lot of times when you're looking for these patterns, sure, you'll find some really obvious ones at first. But once you start, you know, seeing, well, what happens if we took this over here and put it with here? It's a little bit more unexpected. You can come up with things that are a layer or two deeper than that. That's interesting. I can understand why post-it notes would be a good choice. I can imagine with a whole lot of people in the room at the same time, that's got to be very difficult to get everybody's ideas in. Yeah, well, usually what happens is we'll go through our notes and we'll transfer the notes to post-its, just like one idea per post-it and what sticks out to you. And then you'll have one person stand up and share their story. And the story is just the story of what I heard. And then other folks will add to it if you missed a point or they think that there was something else there that they saw differently. Um, and so then you kind of have this compendium of everyone's thoughts on the board. And then, yeah, you don't want too many people in the room because then it just becomes a crazy <laughs> situation. <laughs> I like that it's focused on starting with stories. I mean, the, the, the natural tendency of people is to focus on a narrative with an arc from a beginning to an end. And the idea that people are starting by saying, this is the story that I saw. It seems like a really good place to start with this sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and also you get so much input. It really is a matter of, you know, what stood out and what do you remember? What are the highlights? It's not so much that you have to capture every single nugget or nuance. It's just kind of this, okay, great. According to our challenge, what do we think the things are that are the most important? Now let's capture those and then let's try and see how it all fits together into the bigger picture. Okay, cool. So so I think we're at step three of four, right? We're still in the step three zone because once you've done this crazy mess of a process, um, then we start doing the ideating. So based on what we know, and we've turned these patterns into some sort of opportunity area where we see there's heat there and we want to create design concepts around whatever it is, then we start brainstorming. And then after you brainstorm, you move into the prototyping phase. And I think in the traditional sense, you know, prototyping is a little bit more involved. Like you want to make things and, and here we do, we want to make things tangible, but you only want to put it in as much effort as is needed to communicate your idea. And so it could be pipe cleaners and toilet paper rolls, and it could be role-playing service experiences, just something to be able to communicate what those ideas are. And you want to be sharing those internally with your team, or you want to be sharing them with the people that you're designing for and see, this is what I'm thinking. What, how does this make you feel? What do you think could be improved or where are points in which you're uh, confused or you're, you're having trouble moving forward? And that iterative feedback loop cycle helps you create stronger and stronger um, confidence around what your designs ultimately would be. Interesting. So so in this prototyping phase, you're not going back to the end users. You're going to the clients and to the team, right? Oh, no. Sometimes you do go back to the users as well. And it could be in like a light touch way. So in the beginning, we like to spend a lot of time, maybe an hour and a half or two hours with people diving deep into their story, their lives. And we like to do it in context of where the design would come to life. So if it's something about someone's home, we go to their home. If it's something at work, we go to their workspace and we see it in context. When you're doing the feedback on the prototyping, you know, maybe it's bringing a group of people in and having them walk through an experience or, you know, it's even sending them an email with a couple of uh, sketched designs to give feedback on. So by the time you've gotten to the prototyping, you've, um, 
you've winnowed down the ideas significantly. You've, you've like gotten rid of the ones that are at the at the edges and focused on the ones that you said had heat. There were there was a concentration of ideas. Yeah. And then I think I kind of combined uh, step three and step four, which step four is get smarter. So that's that iterative feedback cycle. Um, and then once you learn from that, you kind of go back around to the ideation. Like, okay, how do we take what we heard from people and revise our hypotheses or our designs and make them a little bit stronger? And you can repeat that until the deadlines come or <laughs> until you feel like you've gotten to a, a solution that you're really happy with. Okay, that's interesting. So at that point, you've got something that you can actually engineer and put out into the marketplace. Conceivably. And then that process takes a while, I mean, depending on what you're making. Sure. And, and then at that point, it starts to tie into some of the ideas that I've heard around the lean business model, where the key is to create your your most basic product and instrument it in such a way that it gives you feedback about how people are using it so that you can then iterate. Yeah, absolutely. They kind of, they play well together. <laughs> That's great. So what's interesting to me now is you you came from a situation where you were working with, with clients and you started thinking about, you, know, you, you and your, your partner in the podcast started thinking about how this could be applied to individuals. So that kind of just came out of the fact that once you learn and apply this process so many times in a business context, it, you adopt it as a mindset of how you approach life. And I started to notice that I was looking at my own personal life through this lens. And I thought, well, one, I think that design thinking is just such a powerful tool in general. I'm a complete evangelist. So how do you get more people engaged in learning this process? Some people are going to come through it through business, but it's also super powerful for people outside of a business context. And that was the direction that Chris and I thought was really valuable to explore. And so, yeah, now, now I feel like I have, you know, bifurcated my brain a little bit and it's, it's thinking about it in the business context, but also thinking about it in a, in a personal context. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started noticing it applying in your, uh, in your individual life? Yeah, well, I think it just, I mean, the mindset is really one of curiosity and openness and not jumping so quickly to solutions. And I like to use this example. It's gross, but um, <laughs> <laughs> when I walk my dog around the neighborhood, there's all those little signs that show a dog going to the bathroom and it has a red circle with a line through it. Like, don't poop here. <laughs> Some of those are so artistic. Somebody needs to go around and collect all of those signs and put together like an Instagram account with like every possible sign for don't poop here. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that is, I mean, that is just such an example of there's a problem and what's the solution? Communicate to people that I don't want this happening in my yard. So, but now instead of having some poop in your yard, every day when you drive home and pull in your driveway, you're staring at the sign of a dog <laughs> taking a poop in your yard. <laughs> exactly. So you've solved it, but you haven't improved it, right? Um, and so it's that mindset that I think is just, uh, hmm, how could I, how could I make that better? How could we improve that experience? What are other solutions? One thing I thought um, in my house, in the front of our house, I thought, well, what if I planted a vegetable garden? Because then that would invite, you know, interplay between neighbors. And also nobody's going to have their dog go to the bathroom in a vegetable garden, because if I'm giving it freely to the neighborhood, it's kind of a, a gift. And, you know, you wouldn't want to be rude like that. Um, but then it turns out vegetables don't grow in 
that part of my yard. And it just happens that there's a cement barrier that blocks it off. So it solves the problem for me. Um, but I think in general, there's opportunity there for redesign. And then I think there's really opportunity everywhere for design. I believe that. And I, yeah. I, I, I like that example. And it seems like there's opportunity now to, to iterate on that example so that it can, you can come up with something that would work for more than one person. Yeah. Well, I freely invite anybody out there listening to take their own pass at redesigning this problem for people. <laughs> so, so you, uh, you and your your partner decided uh, to go and create this podcast. Is the podcast the embodiment of the of what you two are working on together, or is the consulting business the the embodiment? How how do you envision that? What is that? Yeah, well, it's in its nascent stages, so I'm still trying to figure it out. Basically, Chris has uh, an amazing job, full time job. He's a chief design and innovation officer of Sutter Health, and so he's kind of busy. Um, and so the consulting arm is sort of more my end, but between the two of us, the podcast is a shared endeavor. And then I've also started experimenting with creating a class for people to immerse themselves in the design thinking process and go through a design cycle. And I'm couching it around the phrase of improving your life or the lives of others, because I don't want to... I don't want to say, oh, you shouldn't use the skill set to start a business, but I'm not necessarily interested in it being a class offered to people who are like, I'm trying to create a startup and, you know, I just want to make a billion dollars. <laughs> I'm like, I really want people to, to be working on initiatives that are going to be impactful for them or for a larger population of people. That's really interesting. And I'm curious, how, how are you applying design thinking to that process of creating that? <laughs> uh, it's certainly iterative. So this past <laughs> year, I've spent a lot of time doing workshops and giving presentations and sort of honing my explanation of the process itself. And then I've also, in some of those workshops, have been teaching people design thinking in the process. So it's just sort of continuing to evolve and it seems like a natural evolution to to create this this class what sorts of things have you learned from those workshops and from like the questions people have asked you that have changed your approach well the one big thing is the beginning the getting focused and framing the challenge uh, because that was something that was just intuitive in the in the corporate world in the design process and we weren't trying to necessarily teach our clients that part of the the process, I hadn't had to figure out how to help people come up with the right size challenge before. And so that's where um, I've been working with a company called People Rocket that does design thinking and leadership workshops. And, and they're the ones who had developed the Mad Lib. Uh, and, and I've taken that and used it in different situations and seen how, how it just jump starts the conversation in a way that it it couldn't if you're just trying to do it verbally with people and going back and forth. Now that they've heard about it, I bet a lot of our listeners are going to be really interested in trying some of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I invite them to do so. I mean, I, you know, I'm happy to give you some of the resources that, that I use, but I also think there's tons of information out there for people who are interested in learning more about design thinking. Most of it is written in the context of a corporate structure, um, but there's also social good work like IDEO.org, which is a nonprofit and it's focused on social impact. Um, there's also resources for education in the education space. Uh, there's design thinking toolkits that people can use to develop their own. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, we're always interested in having conversations with people who are in the process of designing their lives as well. That's very cool. It would be, it would be wonderful if we could put together like a short list of resources that people could link to. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. One of the things that fascinates me about what you're doing right now is, um, as you said, people working in this field, um, you were working with designers for designers and you didn't actually have to teach people what ideation meant. But now I love the idea that you're bringing that to people who aren't designers, but they need to apply this process to their lives. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, people are always looking for ways to do the things that they say they want to do. Um, but for whatever reason, there's a gap between their aspirations and their actual life. And so that is focused really around behavior change. Um, and so that struggle tends to be more like in the self-help world. There's like, you know, how to access your inner child and, and do all of that. And that can be helpful. But what I'm really interested in is a methodology that can be consistently applied to help you solve challenges creatively. And, and it's not just sort of a like waiting for inspiration or, you know, having to go through years of therapy to access it. Yeah, I, I, can, I can relate to that. I've had my fights with the procrastination monster and all of the, the all of the different iterations that that comes through. I'm, I'm curious, what, what challenges were you facing that, that you've had to overcome through this? And how have you found your motivation to keep going? Yeah, I mean, I still struggle with the procrastination monster myself. I've, I mean, it it's interesting. We spoke with, uh, her name is Dr. Kyra Bobinet. She is, her background is, is a doctor, but then she also came to design thinking and she does a lot of work around behavior change. And one of the things that she talks about is how designs have an expiration date and that they need to be focused on who you see yourself to be truly as an individual. And so um, I did an exercise just recently for myself where I wrote down what are all the things that I tell myself I am in my mind, you know, good and bad, uh, things that I've carried around since childhood that maybe I'm not so happy about, and but don't necessarily actually describe who I am, but they're there. And so I want to design for that little crazy monster telling me I'm, you know, a, a bad person. I want to take into account that, that that is a part of who I am. And then if I can design to change that point of view or create something that allows me to do things differently than I have in the past, then I'm not just designing for my aspiration. And I think that's what a lot of people do. Like, okay, it's the new year. Everyone's making their resolutions and they're like, Hey, I'm going to not eat after 6 PM. And, you know, I'm going to keep myself to one glass of wine and you underestimate the, the fight that your future self is going to have with the negotiations that your 
current self has made. Like you've made decisions for your future self. And once that future self sees what you did, um, it's most likely not going to be happy unless you've considered, you know, these self images that you have or the ways that you describe yourself. I love the way that you put that because it's uh, it's almost as if you're looking at your future self with all of these images of who you are as the as the user of this experience that you're trying to create for for your future self of um, not going to eat after six or whatever, um, and then you're trying to design a process that that future self will respond to and respect. Yeah, and so for a concrete example, um, I was looking. My husband and I were looking at ways like how do we redesign our evening experience so that we're not just watching TV and drinking wine, and what we realized were some constraints. We, it needed to be in our home, needed to be stuff that we could do at home because at the end of the day, we're too tired. We don't want to go out to a museum or, you know, like go see a movie or these other things. We want to have a, a place or a sense of relaxation. So we've worked really hard. What's our reward? Now, our reward can be TV and wine or it can be a, a host of other things. And so we brainstormed around that and came up with some ideas. We just uh, redesigned our garage space to have some arts and crafts and some, you know, that's where he has his his record player or his turntable. But it's a space for creative exploration and expression. And so we did that. We, we thought, oh, well, what if we did a, an evening where we're both into science and stargazing and, you know, we have backyards so we could go out and look at the stars and you know, it's just what are other experiences that we can create? And then not putting pressure on them like we must have four stargazing experiences this month or anything like that. But it's just it's there to choose from when we want to wind down and do something together and have it be, you know, more engaging for the two of us. I like that. So it's you're not trying to push yourself into changing you're trying to sort of draw yourself in and attract yourself. Yeah. What are things we already like to do? How can we combine them in ways that make them seem like a cohesive experience? And then how do we make ourselves available to having those experiences throughout our week or the month or, you know, the year? It's a very simple process. It's not, it, it doesn't involve a lot of uh, foam core boards or post-it notes or things. It's just the two of you talking. Well, we did use post-it notes, but there weren't any foam core boards. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know it's nerdy. <laughs> no, no, that's completely legitimate. I mean, everybody has a different process for this sort of thing, and if that's that's the way that you've been learning how to externalize your thinking and put it out in front of you. Yeah, and I think it is because I'm trained in that way. To I've applied it for seven years in a business context that it's just easier for me to use the skills that I already have and the tools that I already have. Now, for my husband, it's totally different, and so you know, I'm sort of guiding him through that process and, you know, saying only one idea per post-it. He's like, why are you being so militant about it? It's like, just because that's how you do it. (laughs) (laughs) I guess coming up with that, that set of simplified rules that people can follow just to get them started is really a critical thing when you're working with individuals who don't have a design background. Yeah. And I think that people get confused sometimes thinking that creativity doesn't involve discipline. And what I've come to notice in using this process in both contexts is that discipline is absolutely required. Now, the process is a disciplined approach, but there's so much flexibility in how you uh, use it. So it doesn't feel 
constrained to me as much as it's a, it's a safety net for going to spaces where I might feel are out of my league, right? Where you get back to the, I'm not an expert in nutrition, but I'm helping people design uh, ways to eat healthier or to engage in, in more activity. And it sounds like your background's prepared you well for that because you've clearly, you've helped people design things in a wide range of industries that had nothing to do with your own background or expertise, but you knew where to, where to direct their focus so that they could draw out their own expressions. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of crazy when you look at the, the breadth of it all, because most people would say, yeah, how, when I worked in advertising, it was like, sometimes people would be like, well, you work in car advertising, so you wouldn't know how to advertise for um, a toothpaste. And it's like, well, yes and no, but here it's way more uh, open to really any, any kind of challenge that comes before you. That's interesting. So, uh, what attracted you and your partner to podcasts as a, as as a solution for what you were trying to do next? Um, we met for lunch one day, and he mentioned that he was thinking of starting a podcast. He didn't know what, but it seemed like an interesting media to explore. And as a writer and and storyteller, I had been thinking the same. This was after Serial came out, and and I thought, oh, also my husband uh, has been doing an ancient history podcast called The Ancient World for the past four years. And so I saw him kind of producing this thing, and I thought, well, I I see that it's possible. There's some technical called, you know, limitations, but I think I can get over them, like learning how to edit and, and do that kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, when the two of us came together, our, our mutual interest is around design and helping people improve their lives. And so having a podcast as an outlet seemed like a fun and creative way to, to do that. You know, when I worked at IDEO, a lot of my projects, I would get the opportunity to be nosy, go to people's houses, talk to them, ask them a million questions, meet with really cool experts about things. It's it's fun. And I do have an insatiable curiosity. And so this was another way to invite conversations that I wouldn't normally have. You know, I had a reason to ask Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, to talk to me about his process, where otherwise, why would I ever do that? I, I, you've uh, gotten some really interesting folks and on your podcast. I'm curious how you connected with some of those people. Well, for Andy, I honestly, I just emailed him through Facebook and he said yes, and I dropped to the floor. I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> for most of the other people, it's just, it's... Um, I'm grateful that I have a really solid and diverse and interesting network. Uh, a lot of the folks that I've worked with through the past at IDEO and, and beyond know interesting people. They are interesting people. So when I meet folks, I, I keep an ear out for stories about how they've either designed their lives intentionally or intuitively, or uh, we happen to know a lot of experts in the design process. And so I like to have a mix of people who know design well and people who are just doing it but didn't realize they were doing it. You've got a great collection of different people for people to, to listen to on your podcast. It's really fascinating to hear all of the, all of the perspectives that people bring and the insights that they've, they've been able to put together. Uh, and tying them back to design thinking, is uh, it, it really creates a nice map, map for people to follow 
how that process applies. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, two things. One is that I really am, and we are really committed to diversity of opinions and, you know, we're going to have um, a 91-year-old designer on the show coming up soon, uh, an 80-year-old astronaut. I'd love to get some kids on the program who have done some interesting designs in their own life, um, diversity of backgrounds and ethnicities and you know, just making sure that we're getting a broad cross-section of people so that you know and understand that this is a process for everybody. It's not, uh, it's democratic. It's not, you know, just to be used at the top echelons of society or in the business context, only for Silicon Valley people, or it's not, it's not that at all. <laughs> I think that there is that impression about how design thinking is exclusive to the startup world. And really, it's, it's wonderful how you're democratizing it and making it available to people from such a wide range of backgrounds. Well, I'm kind of selfish because I think the more people that know how to do it and apply it, the better we can attack challenges that are common to all of us. So we'll make a better world for ourselves. Uh, so yeah, I just, I would like to have a great future. <laughs> <laughs> what do you see coming up in that future? I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're just shifting into 2016. I'm curious what you see coming up in the next year for you. Uh, well, I would love to, to, align the podcast with the consultancy a little bit more, working for clients who are really focused on improving people's lives through the work that they're doing. Um, and then, yeah, just meeting more cool, interesting people, asking them tons of questions. I, I think that there's going to come a time soon where we're going to look at the folks we've talked to so far and synthesize those interviews to find what are the patterns and opportunities that we can share back out to our listeners um, so that they can start solving some of those on their own. And also, one thing I'm really excited about, we'd wanted to do from the beginning, but it's harder, um, is inviting people in who are just beginning design challenges for their lives and sort of watch them go through the process. So right now I have a friend who wants to write more uh, regularly. And so I haven't yet put the episode out, but we have him talking about the struggles, the things that hold him back. And then we kind of came up with an experiment for him to try. And so we can check back in with him and see how it's going. So we want more user engagement and listener engagement for sure. That's very cool. I've, one, one of the things I've liked seeing on some podcasts is when they interview somebody and then follow up six months later and see what the impact was. For sure, yeah. So one of the things, certainly around uh, around that kind of motivation, I'm curious about the routines that you've managed to work into your life in order to keep yourself um, moving forward. Because you've, you're trying to take on a lot all at the same time, and I'm I'm curious what your routine is like on a daily basis. Um, it is not very re routinized. I can say that. Um, it, you're right. It's a balancing act. I, I, I like that your routine doesn't have to be static in order to support what you're trying to do. Yeah, it's it's constantly evolving. I look at it just like I would look at any design challenge, which is it's an iteration. Uh, the, the other week I realized, hey, I'm missing having a team around me. I'm missing that team time that I used to have often. Um, and soon after that, an opportunity came up that involved working in a, in a team. And so I knew that was the right one for me to choose. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process. 
Leave a review for the show on iTunes and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.